This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Thursday. Um, we are almost done with GI, so stick Yay. with us one more day. It's not true, one more day. I mean, today we're covering more stuff, questions tomorrow, and then we'll move on to another topic whenever whatever Chief Fellow Daphna Barbo decides. In case people didn't know, Daphna was... No, you were Chief Resident. Chief Resident. We didn't have a chief fellow. We had like rotating chief fellows. Mm, Did you guys have that? that. No. It was not a. It was not an honor. It was sort of someone's <laughs> got to do. Somebody had to be in charge of. The, Somebody had to be in charge of like didactics of lectures and and scheduling things and. I'm. I, I'm. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> well I have a tight grip on my own schedule. I hate that role. I even went to my fellowship director and I said. I'll do an extra month of rotation if that's what it takes. Like, I just do not <laughs> want to do be a chief fellow. Um, there was no option. I had to do it. But uh, well, that's the interesting thing. Um, I digress. But in chief resident, you know, when you're the chief fellow, you still also have all your fellowship stuff going on. That's tough. Be the chief resident. You just got to be the chief resident. <laughs> Did you guys, I mean, our chief uh, residents were like mini attending. So like they would round on we, the weekends. Right. We did have service time on the, as a hospitalist and in the newborn nursery. Actually. There you go. And yeah. you, uh, you, you, you got to, to have the prestigious title. You forgot, <laughs> you forewent a year of, uh, you, you cut your salary in half for one year. That's true. For that, for that but prestigious you know, I title. Regret it. I don't regret it. I, I really enjoyed that year a lot. Um, it taught me a lot about the hospital and how the hospital works. And, really? We'll have to yeah. talk more because uh, my, my fellowship, my residency program, basically you were nominated to be right. resident and yeah. then you could decide to, to run and, and be voted in or not. I was nominated to be chef resident and I was like, F no. <laughs> and then as I went into fellowship, I'm like, will I regret this decision? And and in retrospect, I mean, everybody who did it, I mean, they were all phenomenal. They were all like, everybody who ended up being a chief resident was already always like one of those phenomenal senior residents. So um, it's a badge of honor for sure. But I don't feel like I missed out on anything, but maybe I did. Maybe I did. <laughs> well, you know, I think there are a lot of us who are fellowship trained that, you know, everybody's like, if you're going into fellowship, why would you waste a year as the chief president? Mm -hmm. But I, so you got a lot of external pressures, but it was a good year. And I had a great co-chief, so that made all the difference. Uh -huh. Anyways, I can talk about that for a, whole, right. for a whole episode if you're interested. But why talk about chief residency and fellowship when we could be just digressing on short bowel syndrome? Short bowel syndrome. Okay, let's do it. Fine. What is the pathophysiology of short bowel syndrome? It's kind of like it's in the know, name. This no? like vague, ominous term. It feels like, but it's in the name. That's exactly right. That means you have 
less bowel than anticipated. Um, but but you can also have a, sh- a functional short bowel. But the 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 definitive short bowel syndrome is malabsorption secondary to bowel resection, um, typically after small intestinal atresias, neck, volvulus, gastroschisis, or Hirschsprung's disease. So, for whatever reason, um, you had a piece of bowel removed, and so the absorptive capacity of the intestine um, has changed. And even a small section of uh, intestines being removed may lead to severe chronic diarrhea and failure to thrive. Um, There are a significant number of complications. Um, You can have intestinal hyperplasia when exposed to enteral nutrition. Um, This is much more common um, in the ileum um, than in the jejunum. You can have gastric hypersecretion, bacterial overgrowth, which also leads to vitamin B12 deficiency, um, and if severe enough, can lead to lactic acidosis. You can have colitis or ileitis, watery diarrhea, cholestasis, um, and all of these things can lead to failure to thrive. So what's the management? Uh, Hyperalimentation, um, so uh, catch-up growth, um, often a prolonged need uh, for TPN. Um, and then you need an enteral formula to mimic normal physiology. If you have bacterial overgrowth, the treatment is antibiotics. Um, and then certainly as uh, these infants are working up on feeds, um, monitor for dumping and electrolyte or fluid loss. Interestingly, I think this people don't know this, but sometimes you can have even dumping or electrolyte and fluid losses even after you've gotten to full feeds, right? So that risk doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. A small number um, of patients may require surgery to optimize bowel transit time. Um, and what does this look like? Some people need a creation of valves. So basically just to slow the vet, they add little valves um, to slow the transit uh, time through the bowel. So more absorption can happen or reversal of bowel segments. Um, they may need surgery to improve motility. So if you have these big dilated segments that aren't doing their job, um, they can be resected. Um, there are intense intestinal lengthening procedures um, and uh, things like a tapering enteroplasty. You can increase mucosal surface area um, by using intestinal lengthening procedures, such as a serial transverse enteroplasty procedure. This is called the STEP procedure. And then in the end, some patients still may require a small bowel and or liver transplant um, in the face mm-hmm. of short bowel syndrome. The I've only seen the, the STEP procedures. I, I mean, those other procedures you mentioned sound, sound horribly scaring complicated with the high risk of complications yeah. and failure. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, the prognosis, so better, I think this is a really important, better if you have the intact ileum um, because of its role in bile acid absorption. Um, it's better if you can maintain an intact ileocecal valve um, because that's an innate valve that we already have, that its job is to delay transit time so that there's more time for digestion and absorption. The valve also acts as a barrier to prevent overgrowth of colonic bacteria in the small intestine. So that's one of the first questions you should ask the surgeons. How much bowel did you take? Where did you take it from? And uh, does the ileocecal valve remain? Um, There's a worse prognosis um, if the colon is uh, resected 
there's no ileocecal valve, there's greater than 25 centimeters of bowel resected with the ileocecal valve, or um, greater than 40 centimeters uh, without the ileocecal valve resected. So um, the ileocecal valve, like I said, does a very important job. Um, infants with as little as 15 centimeters and intact ileocecal valve have survived. Um, and then, like I said above, if there's no ileocecal valve, then you require about 30 to 45 centimeters of intestinal length uh, left uh, to, do, to do that job. Mm -hmm. um, surprising, I guess, right? That's such little valve, mm -hmm. um, yeah, can, can still do the trick, so gives us some room to maneuver. Okay. <laughs> Though in my experience, even the removal of a very small amount of bowel can lead to severe uh, symptoms of short bowel. Symptoms. It does. It does feel short bowel feels like this, um, this tunnel where you're like, oh my God, now it's short bowel. Like you feel like it's mm -hmm. going to be months and it's just, there's so such protracted courses. Mm -hmm. Oh, terrible. So yeah. we thank our, our GI short gut teams that we have mm -hmm. to <laughs> take care of these babies. Um, okay, so I'm moving on to one of our last topics in GI, it's abdominal masses. So what's interesting about abdominal masses is that I think when we study for the pediatric boards, we think, oh, which tumor is this, right? Is this Wilms? Is this, you know, neuroblastoma? All these things. Now, when we're talking about the neonatology board exams, an abdominal mass, usually you got to think renal, okay? So... Uh, what do we mean uh, by that? Meaning that the most common cause for having a flank mass is a renal issue. Most commonly, hydronephrosis. And that's, in my opinion, an easy question to draft. Uh, the specific differential diagnosis for why hydronephrosis would be there is uteropelvic or uh, uterovesicular utero junction obstruction, posterior urethral valve, or a neurogenic bladder. <laughs> Sorry. A, um, another general type of mass accounting for most of these renal uh, ideologies are renal cysts. We see these pretty often, multicystic dysplastic renal disease, which are typically unilateral. You could have polycystic renal disease uh, in neonates with uh, autosomal recessive and then bilateral disease. Um, less likely, you could have thrombosis with renal vein thrombosis or otherwise tumors like mesoblastic nephromas. Um, it's the most likely neoplasm. It's the most benign. You could also have Wilms tumor as well. Okay, so these are flank masses. Now, what if we have other masses in the proper abdomen? So let's talk about right upper quadrant. Um, if you have anything juxtarenal, the most likely are either neuroblastoma or some form of adrenal hemorrhage. If we have liver, liver masses, I think this is where you will find your tumors. Uh, infantile hepatic hemangioma, it's benign, but it's the most common. You could have mesenchymal hamartomas. You could have hepatoblastoma. This is 1% of all pediatric malignancies. And there's a known association with Beckwith-Wiedemann. Um, so I think... I think liver really is where you you are most likely to be tested on actual mass on actual uh, neoplasms. You could have lysosomal storage diseases that could cause a liver mass. You could have a, a, a cyst of the bile duct, a cholelocal cyst specifically. All these will be fine in your right upper quadrant. 
if we go to the left upper quadrant, then we're going to find our spleen there. And um, anything that could enlarge the spleen could be due to either infections, hemolytic anemia, things like spherocytosis, thalassemias, uh, and so on. Spondomegaly from infections like CMD, EBV, spirochetes, and so on. Or you could have storage disease like Gaucher, Niemann-Pick, or Hurler syndrome. Let's say you have a mid-abdominal mass. Uh, so we know definitely of pyloric stenosis, the famous olive, or, or you could have other types of cysts like duplication cysts, intraperitoneum meconium cysts, or mental cysts, um, and so on. If you go further down in the pelvic region, uh, you could have genital masses like a simple ovarian cyst, uh, or you're feeling an ovary after torsion, or you could feel like something much worse like a teratoma. Um, in terms of other tumors you could get in the pelvic region, you have teratomas, rhabdomyosarcoma, and obviously, again, uh, sacrococcygeal teratomas. These should be pretty obvious to see. Should I do ascites? Sure. All right. <laughs> so the next, the next portion of uh, this section discusses neonatal ascites. Um, Neonatal ascites obviously is present in the context of abdominal distension. Uh, radiographs should show a sort of whiteout of the abdomen as the fluid sort of obstructs the gas pattern. Um, and because um, of where, because of gravity, because of how x-rays are shot, you should start seeing some centralization of bowel loops, meaning all your intestines sort of congregating in the center of the film. Now, what are some of the possible, the possible ideologies of ascites? Um, there's many of them. Um, so the question becomes, what is the ascites you're dealing with? So depending on what is the ascites, uh, what, where, where is the, what type of fluid you're dealing with, you're going to have different um, ideologies. So let's say you're dealing with transidate. Well, then you're thinking more of um, things like high drops, maybe uh, congestive heart failure, cardiac arrhythmia. Now, let's say you're thinking of an exudate, like this is what your ascites fluid is made of, then you're thinking more meconium peritonitis. Um, what if you have, it's a bloody ascites, then you're thinking hepatosplenic trauma. If it's chylus in origin, then you're thinking maybe lymphatic obstructions or malformation. Um, if it is due, um, if it's, uh, uh, it's hepatic failure, you can think of congenital infections, obviously, or familial cirrhosis. Um, GI obstruction could lead you to have some ascites as well. But one that's interesting, obviously, is if you have urine. And then you have to really think of posterior urethral valve. Uh, this is the most common urinary cause. Um, you could also have uh, an issue related to bladder perforation, uh, a history of neurogenic bladder. And the possible mechanism for urinary ascites include transudation through the bladder wall and or rupture of a fetal bladder. Now, I think this is very high yield specifically because as we are um, intervening more and more on these infants who have these uh, urological issues congenitally um, with catheters being inserted in utero, I think these are things that could be easily described and uh, put in the context of a vignette. But that's really it. Um, mm -hmm. This is a short uh, section and uh, yeah, you're going to talk to us about delayed passage of meconium. Yes, 
another another few uh, short sections here to finish with, but um, delayed passage of meconium. I think this is a good little section, especially clinically relevant. We wonder like especially for the how people long who love is to to roll out Hirschsprungs. That's right, that's right, <laughs> like me. Okay, um, so meconium is passed within 24 hours in 99% of healthy term infants. Um, and it says all by 48 hours. So that's really where you should, you should know. By the 48 hour mark, if no uh, passage of meconium, you should be looking for something. So. I was gonna say, usually you give me a, a hard disagree do you agree with that? I feel like some kids do. T- it's not all. I've seen well, kids pass it. Like I remember, we had a co-resident. Her kid wouldn't poop, right? Obviously, as a resident, you're well aware of this scenario. And so, on the resident chat, I remember one text coming in at midnight, be like, "He pooped," and it was like, <laughs> the relief that our that our uh, collective. Listen, I don't know. It says all here. It says it says all. all. That's true. I don't think that includes. Uh, babies necessarily who come to the NICU, right? Who are on not on a regular feeding schedule, was, yeah, for I example. Not, you I know, not, yeah, I was thinking of I was not thinking of NICU babies, but anyway. Right. Um, so I'm not I'm not going to argue with Doctors Brodsky and Martin here. No, that's true. It's a bad <laughs> bad, bad idea. Um, but this is not necessarily true for preterm infants, right? So we know that preterm sometimes we are waiting a long time. Uh, for stool. And I imagine that in the next few years, this table will change. This mm. comes from, let's see, 1999, failure to pass meconium, diagnosing neonatal intestinal obstruction. So frankly, I'm sure that this table has already changed given how much younger we are resuscitating. I think I was like 14 years old when that table was... So now, with all these 22 and 23 weekers, my personal experience is that it is longer. It's much uh-huh. longer. So this says, passage of meconium and preterm infants. Day one of life, um, 37% of infants are expected to pass meconium. Day two of life, 68% of infants are expected to pass meconium. Uh, day nine of life, 99% of infants are expected to pass meconium. That doesn't feel unreasonable. Nine days over a week, um, but that means that many babies still at a week of life have not passed meconium. This is a little bit like the uh, standard deviation curve. <laughs> That's right. In, in passing or meconium. But I do, I do think, I think this is extremely low yield. Actually, I don't think oh, you're going to get a, I don't yeah. think you're going to get a question of like, uh, tell when when is the baby expected to poop? But I think it's yeah. just there to show you. I think also. This table is probably still reliable if you're thinking of like a 33 weeker. Absolutely. And I think, and I think, even though they're not going to ask you about why hasn't a 22 weeker pooped at day four of life, um, they may very well say that a 33 weeker is on uh, day three and hasn't pooped. Do you going to go into an invasive workup to rule out Hirschsprung? And you should know that babies who are born preterm are allowed to not poop this past the 48 hour mark. I think that would be an. I like my question. I know it's a good question. You know what? That's a good vignette. I'm proud of this one. You like that one? Yeah. Uh, I think, though, clinically, right, in the moderate, moderately preterm infant, I, you know, the 28 to 32 weekers, we're really pr- pushing on these kids. We're like, it's day five. They didn't stool yet. It's day six. They didn't stool yet. When really most yeah. of them won't. won't. Yeah, but that could be a, that's, I like, I like my little vignette because it could, um, it could, it's, it's also about resource utilization, right? You're like, well, I guess you you should just be uh, writing down these questions. I don't think I'm there yet, but you know, (laughs) 
one step at a time. <laughs> okay. Well, so what happens if you're at these uh, thresholds and your baby still didn't poop? So what what should you consider? So obviously you'd be looking for some sort of obstructive etiology. Duodenal atresia, malrotation, volvulus, atresias, meconium milius, meconium plug, Hirschsprung's disease, and imperforate anus. Hopefully, hopefully by day nine you have rolled out an imperforate anus. <laughs> That'd be bad. But those would be the things to look forward to. And then I think this dovetails nicely into this uh, this section here, abdominal distension and emesis, which is a, quite a vague topic also. But obviously the differential is broad. It encompasses each of the diagnoses included above for abdominal masses, ascites, and failure to pass meconium. And this these are important key points about bilious emesis. So mm -hmm. bilious emesis, always an emergency, typically suggests an ileus or a gastrointestinal obstruction distal to the common bile duct insertion into the duodenum. Uh, if you remember that anatomical landmarks, that's the ampulla of Vader. And bilious emesis is considered a surgical emergency until proven otherwise because it is a harbinger for so many bad things. Mm -hmm. um, it requires immediate evaluation, and this is usually in the form of abdominal radiographs, but specifically in contrast uh, studies to look for uh, a level of obstruction. Okay. Actually, why don't I do why don't I do this last little section here so we can finish out? I thought this is interesting. The establishment. The establishment of air pattern on a plane radiograph, another little tiny table. So when do you expect bowel, when do you expect air to be present in the bowel? So at three hours of age, uh, you'd expect air pattern to the small intestine. At six to eight hours of age, uh, air pattern through the large intestine. And by 24 hours of age, where you would also expect a meconium passage, you should see air pattern into the rectum. If not, get, get to looking. Okay, buddy. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.